0: And uh, that's something that we invest a lot of time and resources in uh, along the way. This morning, uh, we have the privilege of having uh, Charmaine Heading here with us. Uh, I just met her this morning. Uh, I'm trusting Doug and Chris here, but from the conversation we had, uh, I'm really encouraged and excited. Of course, also the stuff she has on the website and and beyond, but... I'm so glad that she's here. She has a ministry in which they minister with the uh, persecuted uh, Christians. Uh, She is focusing more. She can tell us more about it, but more in the Middle East right now Uh, and uh, North Africa. And so we had a little conversation about where we have some overlap in northern Kenya uh, and so forth. Charmaine, would you come up? And uh, I'd like to pray for you. This is uh, an opportunity that... I don't want to pass up. Um, it's a reality of what our brothers and sisters live around the world. Uh, this morning we did have a special offering, but I just want you to know next Sunday uh, we're going to have an opportunity for another. Uh, if you weren't able to give this morning or forgot uh, to give again, and uh, if you ever gave this morning, and can give twice. It's okay. We, 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 we have a bookkeeper that can sort that stuff out. Right, Paula? Uh, She'll, she'll make sure it's, uh, it works. Uh, but we want to be supportive of these ministries that are have the same heart that we do. And thank you for coming. Uh, and I want to thank you for Charmaine, for her ministry, for the call on her life. I pray, Lord, this morning as she shares, I pray as she uh, talks about uh, what she's encountered around the world. That it would resonate in our spirit. It would resonate in our hearts. And I pray that it would stir us as we consider what, our, uh, what God's call is on each one of us and what God's call is on our church as well. And so we bless you and we bless this time this morning. In Jesus' name,
1: amen. amen. I'd like to thank... Um, Pastor Allen and his wife for having me here today, it's a great honor and a pleasure and I just felt that there was open heavens above your congregation and your church here and so it's just a, it's an honor to be in a place where you still value freedom and you know what God has given you and so I really thank you for the ability to be here today. I want to start with a video just to introduce you to the subject of what I want to speak about today. You can hear by my accent probably that I'm not American. (laughs) I was born in Cape Town in South Africa to Assemblies of God Pentecostal missionaries that planted churches in Southern Africa. And so I've always had a heart for the church and I've always had a heart uh, for what we call the global south and the persecution that happens in this part of the world. So we'll start with the video. In 2014, I watched as the Islamic State aggressively Attacked the villages of the Nineveh Plains, and knowing how the persecution had looked like over the past few years, I watched with horror and decided that I needed to get up and do something about it. As the Islamic State attacked the different villages and towns in this area, They came in and said to the Christian community, you have three options. You can convert, you can pay a tax, or you can leave or die. They literally got in their cars and they had to immediately pack whatever they could. And even then, many did not survive. Many were taken, many were kidnapped, and many of the women and children who they managed to capture were sold into sexual slavery to multiple jihadis that fought for the Islamic State. That's the reality of the situation in the Middle East, and it's the reality of why it's a genocide. As a result of the constant persecution, we're looking at figures of in the year 2000 that there was approximately 1.5 million Christians in this area of the world, in Iraq, and now we estimate that there's less than 200,000. I believe the call is to stand, to stand with them, and to support them in every way that we can, prayerfully, but also practically, and this is what Shaifan does. Many of the families want to return but they need that spark of hope and that's what we're plowing into here. We are standing with the families and giving them hope, build their businesses and build this community again and stand proudly as Christians in Iraq. The Bible talks about if one part suffers, we all suffer. And Jesus said, they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If you believe that this is something that you can support, then donate and give to projects like these that really make a difference in the lives of families. Christians today are one of the most persecuted groups in the world. Last year, 90,000 Christians that we know about were murdered for their faith, that we know about. The rest of them died unknown to us because it's not reported, and there's largely a blind spot in most of our media about what is happening to Christians today in the world that we live in. 215 million Christians live in 100 high or very high risk areas. Let me just wait for the PowerPoint to come up. That's 1 in 12 that are persecuted for their faith. The figures are staggering. Worldwide persecution of Christians has risen every year for the last four years. This is the area that we're working in now because most of this persecution is happening in countries like these, in Iraq and Syria. Many of you would have heard of the Islamic State uh, which came in to this area of the world. And uh, this is the ancient map of the Near East. You can see Canaan, which is uh, where I live in Israel today. It's where I come from. And then you can look north going up into Syria, uh, which is your Syria, and up to Nineveh, which is now in Iraq. And this is where most of the Christian community that I'm working with in both Iraq and Syria come from. You can see this is a modern-day map of Iraq and Syria. And if you have a look, I want you to have a look at the two red dots. One that is near Mosul. Mosul is ancient Nineveh, what you read in your Bible about the prophet who went to Nineveh. And on the other side is near Aleppo. And I want you to remember that because we're going to talk about what's happened to some of the believers and especially one of the pastors from America, Andrew Brunson, Who has been held in Turkey because of his faith and what he did in that area? Next slide. So, what happened with Christianity when it started and it came out from Jerusalem after Pentecost? And the apostles went, like Thomas, through Iraq and Syria into the Far East. And on the way, they told the good news. And what's important to know is that this is not a colonial import. Christianity is indigenous to this area. It was in Africa before it was in Europe, India before China, and it was in England sorry, India before England and China before America. It's important to know that this is an indigenous Christianity they speak the same language that Jesus spoke. They speak Aramaic. When I go into the towns and villages in Iraq and Syria, they speak exactly the same language as Jesus spoke. Christianity was in this area seven centuries before Islam. And now what has happened to the Christians in Syria and Iraq I can't go through all the countries that we work in because we work in Syria, Iraq, Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, the Palestinian territories, and other places in northern Africa. But I'm going to focus on Iraq. But just to mention, because there has been a seven-year war in Syria that we all see and hear about, do we realize that of the 1.1 million Christians that represented about 10% of the population in Syria – We estimate, we think that it's less. It's uh, about 400,000 that are left. In Iraq, in the year 2000, there was a census done in Iraq. 1.3 million Christians. And now today, there's less than 200,000. The persecution of Christians has been a sustained, systematic attack on their churches, their pastors, the lay people, their women, and their girls. I have spoken and met people from churches. Where after Sunday communion service, people walked into the church and shot up the congregation and the pastors. And the community was so scared that the pastor's bodies lay outside the church for three days because no one would dare to go near in order to bury them. The persecution increased in Iraq from 2000 to 2014 radically. And for most of us here today, in 2014, it suddenly came across our media when the Islamic State attacked many of the Christian community in this area of the world in order to establish what they call an Islamic Caliphate or kingdom. And in their search for religious purity in this area, they attacked, they exterminated, and they destroyed the Christian community and other religious minorities like the Yazidis, Mandaeans, Kakai. And the Christian community fled. Because they came into the community, into Mosul, and into areas like the Nineveh Plains, which have a strong Christian history of over 2,000 years. And they marked the homes and the businesses of the Christians with the Islamic Nun, that stands for Nazareth, which is the Arabic in English. We know it as Jesus of Nazareth. For the followers of Jesus of Nazareth, you got that Islamic nun marked outside your homes as a target to the community that you were fair and free game. (coughs) And those of us who know our history know what happened to the Jews in the Holocaust. We know about the Yellow Star of David that marked the Jews and we know that six million of them perished and in the same way these jihadis as they marked the Christians and they came into the Nineveh Plains and they came with these pickup trucks with with, uh, missiles and uh, RPGs at the back and the black flags of ISIS waving and they also had a banner. And the banner said in, a- in Arabic, First the Saturday people, then the Sunday people. First the Jews, and then the Christians. There are no more Jews in Iraq and Syria. We are seeing the end of Christianity in Iraq. There's less than 200,000 left. It's been called a genocide. (coughs) Because they were given an ultimatum. They were told, you can convert to Islam. You can pay a so-called jizya or a protection tax, which was a form of extortion to get all the money from the Christians before they said to them, we've canceled the jizya and you can either leave or die. And the Christians knew that when they were given this option, and it was pamphlets that were handed out by the main mosque in Mosul, what would happen to their community? Because those of them, for example, that were living in the Nineveh Plains, and if I can make a comparison, if uh, Stevens or the area that we live in is the Nineveh Plains, Mosul would be Lancaster. And so they heard that the people had come into Lancaster And that they were killing the Christians And they were giving them this ultimatum And they were marking their homes With the end for Nazareth And they knew that their time was up When they started to bomb the the villages The Christian villages of the Nineveh Plains They knew that if they didn't flee They would be forced to convert Or die by the sword And so they left And as they left, some of them didn't make it out in time because the Islamic State set up checkpoints as they left Lancaster, for example, to come now to this area to flee as the Islamic State moved. And they set up checkpoints, and they captured some of the women and the girls. And this is a verified UN document translated into English showing what would happen to women and girls of both the Christian and the Yazidi, which is another minority religion in the area, if they were caught by the Islamic State. And you can see that they have the recommended prices for how much a woman should be sold for in an open sex market from the age of one And upwards. And I've spoken to women who were sold in those sex markets. Because they were Christians. Because of what they believed. They were second class citizens. Because of their faith. They could be sold to multiple jihadis. And as the people fled the Nineveh Plains, and they knew that they were coming, they'd fled Mosul, they came to the Nineveh Plains, like this area here. This is what they did. This is a beautiful old church in the Nineveh Plains. And inside of it, there's documents and manuscripts written in Aramaic of the Bible, and they've worshipped here for hundreds of years and they burnt it next they focused particularly on the cross where there was a cross they blew it up if the outside of the church had a cross they tore it down Next and they took their Bibles and their manuscripts and they burnt them. Just like they did in Kristallnacht in Germany before they massacred six million Jews. This is in two thousand and fourteen. And any statues of Jesus, and some of the churches are Catholics of Mary. They beheaded them as a message to the Christian community that if we catch you, we will behead you. And they tore down their church steeples because they could not have the cross of Jesus Christ against the skyline and be over them in any way. This is a grave, with a grave stone written in Aramaic, the language of Jesus, and they took those graves, and they ransacked them. And they took the bones of the Christians that had been buried there and they scattered them across the earth so that the wild animals could take them. Folks, that's why it's been declared a genocide. Because their blood cries out. And the U.S. government declared it a genocide in 2016 because they not only killed the Christians and pursued them because of their faith, they destroyed their places of worship. They destroyed their cemeteries and their identity, their books and their culture. It was a systematic genocidal destruction of the identity and who they were of people of faith in Iraq and Syria Jesus said if they persecute me they will persecute you also and as I went in and out of the Nineveh Plains, I was there during the Easter that with the American forces, they were able to eventually clear out the Nineveh Plains. And I went back in about two about two weeks after it had been cleared out. There were still sleep- sleeper cells and snipers, and uh, Mosul was still under attack, which is about... Five to ten-minute drive from where we were, and you know what they did? They went back, and it was booby-trapped. There were landmines. There were tunnels under the grounds with ISIS jihadis that would come up through the tunnels, much like what we see between Gaza and Israel. And they went and they put back that cross. In village after village, in church after church, they put back the cross. And I have to admit, there was a part of me that said, that is like a target. But they went in and they put back that cross. And I'm friends with a lot of them on social media. And everywhere that I looked, they wrote, May we never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus. I took a journey with a family to go back. I wanted to see what it was like through their eyes. When they escaped the Nineveh Plains, when ISIS rode in and attacked the Nineveh Plains and they had escaped. I had been with the community and I would known many of the families because I had got in there as soon as I heard what had happened. And I'll never forget standing in a church pretty much the size of this church. And the Christian families who had survived had fled and walked for about 10 days to get into the out of the Nineveh Plains and into northern Iraq and they'd reached the first church that they could get to to get safety. And there was a, a mother who was there and she was standing in the middle of the church and they'd taken out all of the chairs and along the sides of the church there was mattresses piled up mattresses And they told me that in the day they moved the mattresses to the side of the building of the church sanctuary but at night they would take those mattresses and lay them on the floor and that's when they were sleeping. And this mother looked at me and she was standing in the middle of the church and she said to me, I have to tell you my story. You have to get it out. And she said to me, I have two sons. One is an engineer And one is a doctor. And the Islamic State caught them. And they caught other people from my town in the Nineveh Plains. And she said they took them. And they told them that they needed to convert to Islam. And if they didn't, they beheaded them with long saber knives in front of each other. And they took my son who was the engineer and the community with him and they beheaded him but they didn't behead my son who was the doctor because they forced him to give medical care to the jihadis that had come off the front line and she said when she spoke to her son He said to her, the room that I was in was so covered with blood that in the night when I lay on the mattress, I had to put my shoes under my head so that the blood of my brother would not soak into my head. No one took the Christian community. I live in Israel, but I used to live in Germany and Europe. We've blocked them from coming and escaping this genocide. And so now they have to return. So now they are returning, and I took this journey with one of the families to return to see what they would see. They had small children. They've lost the critical mass. They're down to 200,000. They cannot protect themselves. But they have to go back to the Nineveh Plains. So we went with them to support them. And this is what they saw. Once a thriving, beautiful Christian town with tradesmen and craftsmen, families. The Islamic State had systematically gone through every business and every home. This is the village of Karakash, it had 70,000 people in it, all Christian. They systematically went through and they blew up their homes, their businesses, their churches. This is the grandfather looking at a business that he used to go and shop at. When the grandmother got back into her home there was nothing left that had been destroyed and they swept everything that was left into one pile in the middle of the house. You can see And then the family started to go through, sift through the pile, And I watched them and I wondered what they were looking for. And they were looking for photographs. Because the Islamic State had gone through all their photo albums and torn up every single photo in the three years that they occupied this area under the so-called caliphate. And all that they had left was bits of broken photographs to remember their grandparents, their parents, the place and the home that they'd lived in for, family home that they'd lived in for hundreds of years. Next. And then they went to their business. It was a family business owned by the grandfather, he was a mechanic. All five sons had worked in the business and this is what they found. It was totally destroyed and looted. Next. So the first thing we did was we got in there and we helped them recover their business so that they can start to open to trade and that the family could support themselves. And we've done multiple businesses. I come from a business background, so this is my area And so we go in and we do multiple businesses that we can get these Christian families up and on their feet and able to trade in order to be able to support themselves. Next. These are just some of the ones that we've done. Next. And we do art trauma programs for the children because we talking about children that have seen and experienced things that children should never have experienced and uh, I was talking to some of the children that were in a priest that came from Syria and he was talking about what had happened in uh, Syria and the Christian community and he said to me that they had come in and asked them to convert or they will behead the Christians And they started off slowly by first beheading some of the children and the families and, uh, and then waiting to give the rest an opportunity to convert. And the next day they were going to behead the rest of them. And he told me that that night the children who were still living and were going to be beheaded the next day with their families dreamt and they saw the children with Jesus in heaven. This is a child that we helped who is showing what happened. And you can see the child has drawn a picture of the town in the Nineveh Plains that she comes from and how they tried to leave with cars and with all of their belongings but when they tried to leave ISIS had set up checkpoints and so all that they could do eventually they had to leave their money their valuables, their ID cards and their cars and they had to walk the rest on foot and I was speaking to one of the towns that they arrived in shortly after about 300 people had arrived in the town and we were there giving relief aid and assistance and the pastor of the town had about 70 people and his families in his congregation and he told me that that night he'd woken up because he heard a noise and it was about 4 o'clock in the morning, and he went out into the street, and it was a small town and only you know, 70 families, and so the main street went through the town, and he said that they had collapsed because they were dehydrated, hadn't eaten, hadn't slept, and had walked, and he literally said they came into the town at about 4 a.m. in the morning and just collapsed on the street in the town. And some of the children were so dehydrated that they'd bitten off their tongues. He said it was absolutely horrendous. And he said, you know, what do we do? How how do we, a town of 70, suddenly take on 300? So this is some of what we do with the children to work with them next. And then, of course, there's the victims of sex trafficking. One of the most famous cases is a little girl. He was three and a half years old. Her name is Christina. And she was taken um, in. She came from the town of Karakash in the Nineveh Plains. And she, her parents had thought that because she was so young that the Islamic State wouldn't take her. And uh, as... They were the last to leave because the father was blind and he worked in the courthouse and he never thought that the people he knew and came into the courthouse and worked with him and met him and saw him who followed this ideology would take his daughter. And as they were leaving or being asked to convert or to flee, they pulled his Wife and they took the three-year-old. I showed you a picture of her in Jerusalem because we'd, just, we'd heard that she'd got free about a, a year ago. She was found in Mosul and Mosul was released and she'd been um, put with a Muslim family to be raised as a Muslim and we suspect that she would have been sold when she was nine years old. Some of the other Christian women that I spoke to were taken and captured uh, and were taken down to Raqqa where they were sold in sex markets or in buildings that had been government buildings that had been transferred and blocked up to keep hundreds of women and girls. And then jihadis that came from foreign countries And the one woman that I spoke to had been sold 12 times. And she'd had people from America, Germany, Australia, China, Iraqis, Syrians, Saudi Arabians that had been, just to name a few, that had been her owner and had used and abused her sexually. So we help the people who've been trafficked next but it wasn't just the women that are taken if there were young men below the age of 16 this is a young man that I worked with and helped that was uh, he would, he turns he was 14 when he was taken And they didn't realize that the ISIS had attacked their town, and they got caught at a checkpoint, and they took him and his mother, and they took them into a prison, and they tortured his mother in front of him until he said the Islamic Shahada, which is the profession of faith to become a Muslim, and he said to me, they tortured my mother, they put needles in her, they put a gun to her head, and, uh, and then they started killing people in front of him. And he said to me, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And he told me that when he was taken eventually into Mosul and forced to go on Friday to the Friday prayers, that after the Friday prayers, he would be forced to go into the square and there would be public stonings and there was a woman who had been accused of having sexual relations and he was forced to watch her be stoned to death and he said to me I could only think of what Jesus did at that time and I knew that the faith that I had and the Jesus I serve is so different and is the real love. And so we help these children and we work in a lot of the schools so that they can go to schools that are Christian. Next. Next. And we do relief and food and blankets to the Christian community. And we go in when they have to live in displaced areas and camps where there can be polio and cholera and other waterborne diseases and we make sure that it's healthy. And we watch what's happening And I don't know if any of you are watching what's happening in Egypt, but we're starting to see a similar pattern that's happening, that has happened in Iraq and Syria with the Egyptian Coptic Church. And as I was in the Nineveh Plains in Easter last year, and the Christian community goes out on Palm Sunday with their crosses, and they go into their churches, and the entire community goes out the headlines were about the Christians in Egypt who had gone to the Palm Sunday service and had been blown up in their church and as we watched the media and I'm sitting in Iraq and I'm with the Christian community celebrating Easter and I'm so scared because I'm watching what's happening and I'm watching those Palm Sunday fronds with the blood of the martyrs on it and I know that all of us together in, in Iraq, they know the, where we're going to go. They know the area that we walk through with the Christ. They know the church that we're going to go into to celebrate the life of Jesus. And as I'm watching all of this, there's a Shiite mullah, next one, who puts out a, a fatwa, like a saying, that any Christian who's in Iraq can, must be uh, convert or pay this jizya and we're watching all of this and I'm reminded back of what happened to the 21 Coptic Christians on the beach in Libya. You all would have seen the orange jumpsuits and them on the beach through social media and it was on the news. I had the privilege of meeting the family members of these Coptic Christians last year. And they told me the following story. They were from Coptic Christians from Egypt who were in Libya working as migrant workers, and an Islamic jihadi group affiliated to ISIS came and took them, put them in the orange jumpsuits, and asked them to deny that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. And each one because it was filmed by ISIS, we could tell what they were saying and they put the ticker tape to translate it in the Arab world across the bottom afterwards. But each one of them died with the last words on his lips saying, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And as the last one, they came to the last one, he was not Egyptian. He was actually from Chad. And he had been going with this group and working with them, and eating with them, and spending time with them, but he hadn't actually given his life to Jesus. And when they came to him, he said to them, I am not a Christian, but I will not deny this Jesus. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And the priest who was working with the Libyans called me a couple of months ago when they found their bodies buried in the beach in the orange jumpsuits, still with their hands tied behind their backs, all of them beheaded. And he said to me, all 21 are a witness to Jesus. Because this has caused a huge questioning throughout the Middle East. Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And the scripture that I've put there is, I've told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. the call today is to stand with the persecuted church you can stand with them prayerfully and you can pray for them and I love this quote by Augustine Hippo Perry as if everything depends on God work as if everything depends on you Rabbi Jonathan Sachs I think says it well ask not where is God Ask, where is man? Outside I have a prayer bracelet made by Christians who fled the Nineveh Plains. And you are welcome to take one. But please remember to pray for the persecuted church. Pray unceasingly. Because the suffering they have endured is like nothing we've seen yet on our western shores. And also, be practical. Remember to be practical. So not only to remember those in prison as if we were together with them and those who are mistreated as if you yourself are suffering, but also to give practically. And that's what Shai Fund does, the organization that I started about four four years ago because I wanted to dedicate what I did to the persecuted church. And every year we get to help and we are blessed to join the persecuted church. And we help about 10,000 people every year. So join with us. And pray for some this community that is deeply on God's heart. But also be practical. And reach out in every way possible through your pastor, through the missions that he does Through the work that he does with the persecuted church and organizations that support the persecuted church, the Bible says if one part suffers, we all suffer. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Charmaine. I think this morning we'll just end with time of prayer together. Let's bow our heads and those images, the stories, things that are. Or presented this morning, things that you're thinking about but in addition, stirs other things in our hearts and our spirits. And some of you are comparing perhaps what you're going through in school or at work with what others are suffering around the world. And that's fair. Yet it's very real. It's very real. It's just levels. They're levels. So let's just pray and just let your hearts go where God takes them, where the Spirit takes them whether it's in Nineveh Plains or India or other countries, whether it's school or work or some other situation where it's been rugged to follow Jesus. Lord, we declare this morning that following you is worth it. We confess that we've complained and been dissatisfied with the outcomes that we hope for in the natural. But we declare that our hope and our trust is in you. We declare, Lord Jesus, that. Hope is in you, our trust is in you. This morning, Lord, we also declare that as part of this family of followers of Jesus. We declare our trust in you. The symbol of the cross. trust in you in spite of the cost and Lord our hearts cry out for those who are paying an ultimate price on this earth for those who are even today Facing that reality. I pray, Lord, that you would remind us, that you would draw us, that you would cause us to join forces in prayer in practical ways as we're able. To ensure that people who are our brothers and sisters are suffering will know that they're loved. Not just loved by God, but loved by their family around the world. Lord, today we bless Charmaine and her ministry. We bless those. Others that we know who are investing in similar kinds of ministries. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you for that. And we bless you.
2: I invite you to stand and uh, as I continue to pray. Father God, I just thank you, Lord, that you are a faithful God. And Lord, I just thank you that you are with our brothers and sisters around the world that are being persecuted, even, even as I speak. Father, we pray that you will send your angels, that you will send your protection, Father God, that they, will, that they will stand strong, that you give them courage to stand, believing that you are Lord and Savior, even in the middle, in the midst of all what is the pain and the, the horror that they experience. Father God, I just thank you that we are able to be here this morning to worship you without being scared for our lives. But, Father, I ask that you would just come. Just come, Father God, and just be in every area with every person around the world, Father God, in particularly the area that we're speaking about this morning, Father God, that um, you would just go, you would just go and do miracles In people's lives. Father, I ask for the persecutors. Father, and I bind every spirit of offense that the cross has become to them. In the name of Jesus, Father, I pray that you take care, that you will remove that spirit of offense of the cross among those people that are are persecuting your people. Father God, I pray that you will remove hate, Father God, from their hearts, that you will transform their hearts, Father God, that they will know you as Lord and Savior. Father God, that they would experience love through the Christians, Father God, even in the middle of their suffering. Lord, I pray that you will reveal yourself to the persecutors, Father God, that you will give them dreams, that you will give them visions of you, That you will appear to them. I ask that in Jesus' mighty name. Father, I pray that you open their eyes. That you open their minds, their understanding of who you are. Father God, that you are their Lord and you are their Savior and that you love them. Lord, that even as they are uh, committing atrocities. Lord, killing people. Raping women and children. Father God, I pray that you give them a vision of you as they are doing those things and that they will turn back to you. Father God, I pray that they will not be able to resist, Father God, who you are. And Lord, I pray that you will remove everything from their hearts, from their minds, from their eyes, and all the things that they've been taught that gives them permission to do what they do. Father God, I pray that the fear of the Lord will fall upon them this morning. Father God, I pray that it will be another experience like Paul had. Lord, where you blinded him, Father God, and you spoke to him and he became a great apostle. And I declare that many great apostles are coming from these people, from these, those persecutors. Father God, we pray for their salvation We pray for their families. We pray, Father God, that you will touch their hearts, their minds, their souls, their spirits, Father God, and that you will bring them to yourself. And Lord, I just thank you for the, the body of Christ this morning. Thank you for our brothers and our sisters. Provide for them the needs. Provide everything they need today and the days to come. I pray a blessing on those who are working with them and bringing words of hope, Father God, and protection. Father, I pray that you touch governments to open the doors to the people, Father God, that are fleeing this persecution. Touch your hearts, Father God, and the minds of the people, not just the government, but also the people in the countries, Father God. I see much hate. I hear much hate on the news about people coming here, fleeing either political persecution or any kind of persecution from their home countries. Father, give us hearts that care and that love enough, your people. To be able to welcome the stranger, like your word tells us. When we welcome the stranger, we welcome you. And I ask, Father God, this morning to soften our hearts, to soften the hearts of the government people, Lord, to allow people that are feeling persecution. I thank you, Father God, because you are a good God and you are a faithful God. And I thank you because we are all your children. But, Lord, I pray that you encourage and strengthen the Christians. Provide a way to escape, Father God. I pray for your protection. I plead the blood of Jesus over each one of them. Even those who are crying out right now as I speak. Those who are crying out to you, Father God. Lord, you touch your hearts, Lord. Protect them, Lord, I ask in Jesus' name. And thank you that they are standing, believing that you are Lord and that you are Savior. And thank you for that confession of those that, uh, men, Father God, that we also on the news everywhere, that they did not deny you. Lord, I pray that you strengthen us here, here, Lord, to not deny you, even in the things that happens in the schools or at work. Or, Lord, because we are representing you, I pray that you strengthen us, Lord, to be the faithful sons and daughters. And never deny your name. Thank you, Father God. Thank you for your presence and thank you for your love. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. Dismissed. Um, Pick up your children. Remember, the uh, bracelets are there on the table, and uh, you may take one, and you may take any uh, um, information that is there with you.